Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rural Spark, the podcast on rural innovation in Canada, both social and economic. I'm your host, Helen Murphy. When we think about homelessness in Canada, we might picture inner city shelters and maybe people sleeping in the streets. We don't usually think about rural Canada as being a place where homelessness is a, is a big problem. But of course, homelessness doesn't discriminate. It's everywhere. The problem and the solutions just look a little different in our rural communities. And the lack of recognition of the problem in rural Canada contributes to a lack of funding and services to address homelessness. Thankfully, we do see more research lately shedding light on this issue, including the fact that many people who are experiencing homelessness in rural communities are very reluctant to self-identify as homeless, while they may actually be living in a car or couch surfing. So this week, we invited someone who is active on the ground addressing youth homelessness in rural areas to share her insights on the issue and some innovative solutions taking shape in her community. Terry Lee Kelford is chair of Cornerstone Landing Youth Services in Lanark County, Ontario, where the debate on how to address youth homelessness has evolved in recent years. Good morning, Terry Lee, and welcome to Rural Spark. Hi, thanks, Helen. Uh, Terry Lee, to get us started, I wonder if you can give us a little bit of overview of Lanark County in, in the province of Ontario. Some of our listeners maybe aren't familiar with this area. Right, yes. So I was actually born in the town of Perth, which is about an hour west of Ottawa. And Perth is a little town of a, a population of about 6,000, and it's located in the county of Lanark. And so the county of Lanark is kind of a large uh, geographic area, all again west of Ottawa, that includes the towns of Almont and Carleton Place and Lanark Village and Perth. And then we also have the town of Smith Falls, which is part of that as well. So collectively, it's about 68,000 people. Oh, so that's those small communities, those little towns actually bump up the, uh, the population. Quickly. Yeah. And some of those names might be familiar. I think Smith Falls is on the map a lot lately uh, with the cannabis industry. Yes, the home of Canopy Growth Corporation. Yes, yeah. We've had 1,100 jobs come to that community in the last couple of years. So it's been quite a game changer for them. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terry, we wanted to have you on Rural Spark to, to look at the issue of rural homelessness in Canada. And uh, when we talk about the challenges facing rural Canada, Homelessness isn't often near the top of the list. I wonder if you can give us an idea as to how big this problem is and how rural homelessness might differ from urban homelessness. Right. So, yeah, a few things I would talk about. There was a really interesting article I just read a couple of days ago that came out of the States, actually, and some research there is showing that homelessness is just as prevalent in rural areas as it is in urban centers. And certainly as a service provider in a rural community, so my work is primarily uh, based in Leonard County, and we work with homeless youth there, we would certainly echo that sentiment in the sense that we know that homelessness is just as prevalent in urban centers. Uh, In fact, I, you know, we question right now with migration, meaning that uh, the movement or sending of people who are homeless in rural communities to urban centers probably contributes more to urban homelessness. But in saying that, uh, yes, we do have a significant issue with homelessness in rural communities. It's certainly something I've been passionate about trying to address and and elevate the conversation around. So very grateful to folks like you who are doing work, uh, first of all, on anything rural, but secondly, to uh, help us create the conversation around uh, rural communities and homelessness for sure. So we definitely see a a small rural community like ours, 68,000. We're working with about 80 young people a year. So our organization only works with kids between the ages of 16 and 24. and, And we support between 75 and 
80 kids a year. So it's quite significant. Now, not all of those kids are actually sleeping outside. Some of them are couch surfing. And that's certainly one of the, the challenges we talk about rural communities is that you don't see homelessness in rural areas. And and I think certainly, you know, couch surfing is seen as being synonymous with rural homelessness. But one of the things we're trying to talk a little bit more about is the fact that we do actually have people living on the streets and living outside, um, sleeping rough in rural communities too. Again, the reason we don't see them though is a little different than urban centers in the sense that it's harder to get lost in rural communities. So what I mean by that is that what we've been told by people is that because the stigma of being identified as homeless, people in small communities don't want to sleep on the streets. They don't want to be seen as homeless. So they will do everything they possibly can to stay off the streets. They'll sleep uh, rough in the bush. They'll sleep underneath bridges. They'll sleep in parks. But you won't actually see them sleeping on the streets, even though they're there. Um, and so I think that's a really important thing to talk about. It's certainly something I have to do as someone who's advocating for rural communities around homelessness. Because when I speak publicly, I always have to get past that initial, I've never seen a homeless person in my community for years. So I have to you know, work through that issue with them first to convince them that homelessness actually exists in their communities. But it is there. It's just as prevalent, I think, as urban centers. And it's, it's concerning. So it's the same thing that we might think is a benefit of living in a rural community in that everybody knows everybody and um, people see what's happening in each other's lives. That can be a, a detriment to someone who's struggling with homelessness. Yeah, I mean, I think you and I were talking earlier, we're both from small communities, right? And so there's advantages and disadvantages to that. What I love about the small town, and uh, I certainly felt very proud to grow up in the in the town of Perth. It was a beautiful little community, so very grateful that I grew up there. But, you know, certainly there's disadvantages as well. So, I mean, if you got in trouble at school, <laughs> you know, your teacher potentially knew your parents. And so <laughs> not just because they were your teacher, but because they were your neighbor or, or uh, you know, related to your family somehow. So, yeah, you had to be careful with those things growing up you always knew that there the, the rest of the community was going to know what you're up to so so I can only imagine what that's like for young people who are struggling with you know poverty or stigmatization around even like mental health issues you know I'm a therapist as well so um, we know for young people it's really hard to reach out for support when you're afraid uh, about who's going to find out about it for sure and the organization that you're working with is called Cornerstone Landing so can you tell us a little bit about what Cornerstone is and uh, maybe what its mandate is yeah so Cornerstone Landing actually started about I think it's about 12 years ago actually and it came together because there was a group of just citizens from the community of Perth actually who were really concerned about lack of services they had had a, a case of an individual out there who was struggling with mental health issues and they couldn't find housing for him and so it kind of inspired them to pull some people together to say we need to do something about this in our community and so so originally Cornerstone Landing was called Cornerstone Landing Emergency Residence and so they were looking at creating a shelter and about eight years before that I had actually pulled a group of uh, people together with another colleague of mine and we had set up a community coalition called the Transitions Action Coalition uh, so we had pulled a group of service providers together to say we need to do something about youth homelessness so it was really the coming together of those two agencies about 10 years ago that caused Cornerstone Landing to sort of evolve itself a little bit so we changed from being for all ages all genders to being focused on youth primarily and after about a year of sort of exploring models, we decided to abandon the notion of emergency shelters altogether and to focus on uh, more of a housing first prevention based model. And so that's really what we did. We started supporting young people frontline about eight years ago now. So we were providing with financial support to help them stabilize their housing, focusing primarily on natural supports and prevention based tools. So and it's been quite effective for us over the years. So we talk about the differences between this challenge in rural communities and urban, but also how do the challenges and how does the problem manifest itself differently when we talk about the youth population versus the general adult population? 
Yeah. So I think there's, there's a lot of connections between youth and adult homelessness. And so one of the things I try to, I, I get asked actually this quite often when I, when I speak publicly, what about the adults? And certainly in Leonard County, that happens quite often because there is no equivalent organization in our community that works with adults. And so again, our, our agencies support 16 to 24 year olds, but there's no agency to do that work for 24 year olds plus. And so, and we certainly help out when we can, but we just don't have the uh, resources to be able to help everybody. So, so people will ask me when I speak, so what about adults? And so I'll say, look at, you know, with limited resources and and staffing right now we had to pick a priority area for us and youth was it but I also say that uh, to quote Dr. Stephen Gates from Toronto um, you know working with youth is probably the best prevention model for adult homelessness because we know research shows that people's first episode with homelessness is often 11 and 12 years old and so the longer people are homeless the harder it is to actually get them stably housed and so if you work with youth and we can prevent homelessness happening there it's kind of a, a an approach to uh, ending homelessness early and a prevention based model for adult homelessness so so that's what we're doing we're trying to focus on youth but I would say that uh, again there is a bit of a continuum there so if we can't catch people young enough to be able to you know prevent that chronic sort of pattern of homelessness then certainly it, it, it contributes to becoming more at risk of adult homelessness, I think so. But certainly the root causes, I think, are very similar. So for youth, there's a great uh, national uh, research project that was done, a uh, survey called the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness Away Home Canada is doing a, another uh, research project where they did a survey two years ago. And they surveyed over 1,100 uh, young people from across Canada. It was quite fascinating to see the results, you know, lots of experiences of abuse and uh, neglect. But not only that, they asked questions around school. So lots of experiences of learning disabilities, ADHD, bullying experiences in school. So we also know that Indigenous populations are overrepresented. We know that young people from the LGBT uh, community as well are overrepresented. And so there's certainly lots of risk factors there too. So, so those all feed into adult homelessness to make it very similar. And uh, let's revisit this idea of a shelter because your mm. community did struggle with that and there was a debate that went on. I think a lot of communities who first start to look at this, particularly with maybe the youth population, the idea that might, might come to mind first is well, we should have a shelter. We should build a shelter. And there's a lot of new knowledge, I guess, in this area that's really promoting the housing first model. And I'm sure there was some push and pull in your community as you, you dealt with this, having a shelter versus trying to address housing issues first. How did that shape up in your community that you were able to kind of abandon the shelter model and go to this housing first model? And what are the benefits of doing so? Right. Uh, we're not quite there yet, to be clear. <laughs> I think that debate is still there in Leonard County. But, you know, just recently I was invited to an event in a, in a community um, around Leonard County and they were looking. I wasn't quite clear about why I was there, but I knew it was about homelessness. But as it turns out, it was about community wanting to open a 50 bed shelter in their community. And so I know I sort of probably sounded like the bad news uh, bear in the room, but my position was pretty much, you know, you can do this, but you shouldn't do this. And, you know, don't look at a 50-bed emergency shelter, look at housing first models, look at prevention-based models, look at service coordination, those sorts of tools, because it, they'll get you further than a shelter will in the long run. And so it's certainly something we had to, as an exercise we had to go through a few years ago with Cornerstone. We spent a good year or two looking at models for emergency housing, but for a few reasons we realized in rural communities, it's it's challenging anyways, because of the nature of rural, I think. But beyond that, the research does does support using shelters anymore. So we know that they're one of the most expensive, least effective models. And so by focusing on housing first in our county, we've seen about a 68% reduction in youth homelessness. That's what our model has used and it's been working. And it's very clearly working because we've seen that reduction in youth and we've seen no reduction in adult homelessness. And again, there's no equivalent to our agency for adults. But we decided about eight years ago that we were going to abandon the notion of emergency housing, primarily because of cost. So one minimum wage, 24-hour staff is almost $150,000 a year. Our entire budget to work with about 80 kids right now is about 100000 a year. And so it just didn't make sense to have you know a six-bed or eight-bed shelter 
uh, costing you that amount of money with one staff. So your operational costs on shelters are, are hugely expensive. And then in a rural area like Lanark County, where we have five or six different distinct communities, where do you put the shelter? And if you choose one town, you're then at risk of having to uproot young people from their community to move them to that one shelter. And so you're you know, potentially uprooting them from school, from connections to natural supports, from counselors, from recreation coaches, whatever the connections they may have in that town. And we don't have the resources or transportation systems in Lanark County to be able to get them back and forth. And then if you don't have proper housing in place, there's nowhere for them to go. So it's, you know, best of intentions to say we want to open a shelter and have people moved out in 21 days. But if you have nowhere for them to go, all of a sudden your 21 days becomes 30 and 60 and 90 and 120. And six months later, people are still living in the shelter. So so we wanted to just abandon that notion. And so my tagline when I speak has actually been we're, going, we're determined to end homelessness without ever having a shelter in Leonard County. So in saying that though, it's still a huge concern. We absolutely still have a gap in our system in Leonard County. Uh, we don't have enough housing, so we're running into that problem with great things like growth and development in Smith Falls with canopy growth coming with 1,100 jobs. That also means that housing prices are going up and so that puts people in lower income brackets at higher risk of housing precarity and, and uh, a risk of losing their homes. And so we have an increased risk of homelessness in our communities now instead of less. So we definitely need to build housing. We're really glad that our county of Lanark is, uh, is starting to focus on that, which is great. But we still have a gap in our emergency housing system. So currently in Lanark County, if you presented as homeless today, you'd be offered a hotel room for, you know, two to 10 days, maybe maximum was about what the funding allows. And then you'd be offered uh, a transportation to the nearest urban center to access a shelter, which typically are full right now. So it's actually really hard to access services for people in an emergency uh, context. So, so that's why we're working on tiny homes <laughs> right so, well and yeah. and but just before we get into tiny homes I'm yep. really excited about that idea <laughs> tell us a little bit about the housing first model so when okay. you identify a young person a 16 year old who's in precarious housing situation how is this approach helping them get where they need to go yeah, so Housing First, we were really lucky in Canada to actually host uh, one of the largest projects in the world on Housing First. So uh, Dr. Tim Obrey is here at uh, Ottawa University. He was one of the researchers. It's called the At Home Chez Soi Project, so anybody can look that up. Great. And one of the things that was confirmed in that, along with research around the world, really, is that people typically have better outcomes if they're put in long-term permanent housing. So as opposed to putting somebody in a communal space with 20, 30, 40, 50 other people, if you put them into an apartment with long-term in a long-term housing situation with support wrapped around them there as opposed to in a shelter setting their outcomes potentially are much better and so that's really the model that we adopted and and I'd be lying if I said it didn't make people nervous six seven years ago when we said we were going to start putting 16 17 year olds in apartments but what we've found over the last few years is that it works significantly and you know even if it doesn't work in the first apartment or the first room rental you know by the second one or third one they learn and they you know they settle in and, and they function quite well so we have young people in apartments all over Leonard County who you would never know about they're the the perfect neighbor and and doing great and in school and doing the po- you know the best they possibly can with the resources they have so pretty incredible kids and you surveyed young people which is not always the easiest thing to do to find out what homelessness experiences they might have and what solutions might suit them uh, how did you go about that and what did it tell you yeah, we did a survey a few, few reasons. So with the Transitions Action Coalition, about 20 years ago, there was a survey done of young people. And so we wanted to get some feedback from the community, from young people themselves, about what does homelessness look like? We know it's there as service providers because we see you and we hear your stories. But, uh, you know, first of all, how much homelessness do we have? And then what does it look like to you? Where are you going? Where are you staying? What are you, what are you accessing for service and supports, if anything? And so that there was a survey done about 20 years ago. And then we sort of mimicked that. So when Cornerstone Landing and Transitions Action Coalition sort of came together, a group of members, members came together, we uh, decided that we would go back and and, uh, sort of duplicate a similar survey. And so we went 
to two high schools in Perth. We surveyed 392 students, just about eight, nine years ago now. And it was really fascinating results. Very similar to what we're seeing in the national research now is that, you know, kids were experiencing at least one episode of homelessness in the past two years about 22% of the population, high school population that we surveyed, which was amazing. Uh, but another 7 or 8% of that population of those 392 kids had experienced homelessness on at least 10 occasions in the previous year. And so when we asked them where they were going, they were saying anything from staying with friends, to couch surfing, but some were saying staying in a car, staying in a tent, staying in a cottage. So they're pretty much piecing together whatever they could in terms of supports and locations to, to put a roof over their head. So yeah, so it was fascinating results for us. We, we've always really tried to consider, or sorry, to consult young people when it comes to our programming. And so one of the things I talk about from that survey that we did about eight, nine years ago was that one of the really important questions we asked, which we didn't know was important at the time because we were really kind of throwing questions out, feeling like we were shooting in the dark at the time. But we asked kids, if you became homeless, would you have somewhere safe to go? And we debated the word safe for a long time because we thought, well, what does safe mean? And should we really ask that or use that question? And afterwards, we thought it's not our, actually not for us to decide. It's up for the kids to decide. If they feel like they have a safe place to go, great. So we asked that question overwhelmingly over 90% of the kids said, yes, I would have somewhere safe to go. So that was sent us two messages. First of all, uh, let's focus on prevention. So that was one of the reasons why we started to focus on prevention and housing as opposed to emergency shelters. And secondly, let's capitalize on young people's natural supports. So if, you know, if a young person can't live at home with bio mom or dad, but they've got a half sister that said, yeah, I'll take you and come live with me. What prevents you from doing that for the long term? And often it was money. So, you know, the sister may be struggling financially as well or have kids of their own. And so they can't afford to take another person in. But if we provided you with, you know, $200 a month for food and and supplies, would that be okay? Awesome. That'd be great. Mm -hmm. And so what we found is that young people were able to stabilize their housing placements and natural supports with just a little bit of financial support and some uh, direct support through frontline support volunteers and counselors that we hook them up with so so it worked really well for us in a much less expensive model if you're yes at those, find out what the individual fix is yes and addressing it can be so much uh, less uh, expensive than yes. the shelter model so we found that that was sort of the birth of our housing first program and then when we actually got funding to hire staff um, and also <laughs> I would also say once we got known in the community that we were there as a resource our uh, referrals started picking up and so we went from supporting you know 21 kids to 50 kids to 80 kids and so having frontline staff was really when we sort of adopted a, a really solid sort of housing first approach and so then we we're getting really high risk complex cases of young people sleeping outside chronically and having dropped out of school for a year or so already before we got them. So again, we adopted housing first. So basics of housing first are long-term housing placements as soon as possible without preconditions. So there's no, you don't say, I'm sorry, you have an addictions or mental health issue. We're not giving you an apartment. We're going to leave you outside. We say, no, we're going to get you housing. And then you wrap them in supports from that housing, from the safety and, and uh, stability of that housing. And so again, so housing first means just get a long-term roof over their head and wrap them with supports where they are so and that's really what's worked miracles for us in Lanark County so wonderful and yeah. so let's talk tiny homes um, <laughs> it's a popular topic I think around the world when people think of just uh, housing models but I was interested to learn that your organization is actually using tiny homes in a different way because of course before you get that longer term housing solution there's a temporary need and you want to avoid the shelter for reasons we've discussed. How did you come across this idea of tiny homes addressing that gap? Right. So I was looking at affordable housing models because certainly we need affordable housing in Lanark County. We need affordable housing all across Canada right now. Uh, Lanark County has about 3,200 people at any given time on Ontario Works or ODSP, um, and we only have about 760 units of subsidized housing or rent-geared income housing. So so we have a large portion of that population with very small housing incomes to be able to uh, find uh, affordable housing anywhere in Lanark 
Broward County. So, so we knew that this was going to be an issue. We've done a lot with rent supplements and just using private market housing, but as an agency, we recognized that we needed to start building our own housing. So when I started looking at models, tiny homes, of course, came up for a few practical reasons for us in rural areas. This is a rural issue for me. We don't have access to a lot of grants. It's really hard for us to compete with other uh, urban centers and funding sometime. And so if we had to fundraise to build something, could we actually uh, build one unit at a time? And so tiny homes kind of came up from a very practical standpoint in that if we have to go out and raise $70,000 to build a tiny home, we can. And we did. So we had started talking to Algonquin College about two years ago about having their construction program, uh, students from their construction program, build our tiny homes. And unfortunately, last year, Algonquin had to announce that they were closing that program. But what they were able to do was to apply for a curriculum development grant. And so we partnered with them in August to say, okay, we're going to build a tiny home prototype. Because the other thing that happened when I looked at a tiny home is, is I recognized that there was a whole bunch of pieces of legislation that really prevented tiny homes from legally being on the ground. Right. And so we had a community uh, in Smith Falls, actually, who was uh, contemplating the idea of giving us a piece of land for affordable housing for young people. And we had proposed putting three tiny homes on that property as a affordable housing and there was a bit of a community backlash, more to the concept of youth housing than there was uh, to tiny homes. But it brought up just the topic in general of uh, municipal bylaws and official plans and how they accommodate tiny homes or small small living. So I did start going about a year ago around to our councils and actually asking them to change their official plans and bylaws to accommodate tiny homes and to overlap with the, that with some of the provincial recommendations around certain pieces of legislation right now around secondary suites, for example, that would allow tiny homes to be easily adopted into official plans and zoning bylaws. So so unfortunately, it was right before the election, though, so that kind of stalled the process of changes. And then, of course, in Ontario right now, we have the uh, provincial government asking municipalities to hold off on changes to their official plans and zoning bylaws until they release their housing plan. So so we'll see what comes out of that. But So we're hopeful. We uh, we have what I call our planning heroes in Leonard County. Tay Valley Township has actually changed their bylaws to allow for tiny homes. So we're excited about that. They've kind of led the way, which is great. So, But to, uh, to finish up with Algonquin, we actually started building a tiny home in October. And so what we're doing is the college is actually packaging all the learnings we've gained from this process and, and building it into a course and a curriculum that could be used to teach other people how to uh, build tiny homes. So so we're hoping, I keep saying, oh, just another two weeks, another two weeks will be done. And then there's another design aspect that comes up. So, but, so we're hoping, it's about three quarters done. So we're hoping the next two to three weeks it'll be done. It'd be interesting to look at how that works out because it's something that might be a good model that could be replicated in other areas of Canada. And, and it really does show, too, the value of our small rural organizations like yours partnering with post-secondary institutions. That's, right. that's been a, a godsend for you folks, I'm sure. Yes, for sure, yeah. And I think we're now, we're starting to see, even over the last couple of years, we're starting to see tiny home uh, communities pop up across Canada. So Calgary, uh, we had Dr. John Rook come from the uh, Mustard Seed Program in, in Calgary, come out and, and tour our tiny home, talk to us about the program. And he's their agency's partner with Homes for Heroes to build uh, tiny home villages for veterans. And so there's definitely projects happening. There's been some Indigenous communities in BC that have built tiny homes as well for, for housing. And so it's happening. It's just a question of getting the bylaws to catch up. So, And in Leonard County, you had started to ask me, um, we're actually going to be using this prototype as, as a pilot for an emergency housing project. So we want to be able to put a tiny home on a private landowner's land and be able to hook it up to services there so that we could have a semi-supervised emergency housing option for young people. So, so it'd be temporary housing for young people um, to help us sort of bridge the gap between that and, and the housing program we have. It's going to be terrific to see how that all unfolds. So we'll stay in touch on that one for sure. Yeah. I did want to talk a little bit more about the financial side. It's always been a challenge. You yeah. mentioned how it's hard sometimes as a small rural community to compete with some bigger proposals that might be coming out of, uh, you know, bigger organizations or rural centers looking for government funding, et cetera. Yeah. So um, you've been, you're, you're quite 
more advanced maybe than some of these programs are in other communities. What advice or what, what's your experience with how you were able to get to the point you are now? I think it's been a combination of fundraising and the, you know, provincial or federal government support. Is that, that the solution? Yes, for sure. We, we started as fundraising strictly. Uh, the first year we raised $7,000, primarily through a, a dinner with the church and, a, and just some other general fundraising in the community and, and letting people know we were out there and getting people to send us in checks and tell people what we were doing. And uh, we just started dividing that up based on how much money we had and how many kids we could support based on that. So we did that for the first couple of years. And then we were lucky to get a, a chippy grant through our county of Lanark, which is uh, geared towards uh, homelessness-type programs. And so uh, we were grateful for that. That allowed us to go countywide. And then we got a grant for our staff after that and so it's kind of snowballed but I think really what's made the biggest difference for us is just doing this it's having the opportunity to go and speak and and again elevate the conversation around uh, rural and remote homelessness so it's one of the reasons why we just pulled together I think I was telling you in uh, December we pulled together a group of people from across Canada to set up what's called the National Alliance to End Rural Remote Homelessness it's been one of my concerns as someone who's an advocate for rural communities that uh, on a federal level we're really kind of left out of the conversation altogether and so uh, people will say oh we know it's an issue but there's been no real significant acknowledgement that rural homelessness is uh, is an issue and so we've been really fortunate to be able to pull um, some folks together some individuals communities agencies municipalities together to start to say what can we do to actually advocate for rural remote communities on a national level so and thanks to the Canadian Alliance Den Homelessness they've been very supportive in helping us get this set up and launched so I'm hopeful that collectively we'll be able to uh, build a voice um, that will be able to talk about issues like migration and how significant that is we're seeing trends across the country like, you know, St. John's Newfoundland, who's a member of this group, Choices for Youth, they, in their community, recognize, or sorry, in their in their their annual pit count that they do, so their point in time count, which is a count of homelessness in their community, showed that you know 50% of people in St. John's are not from St. John's. They're from surrounding rural, remote communities. I was just talking to the municipality of Yellowknife a couple of weeks ago, and, and their pit count showed that uh, only 18% of the people from that from Yellowknife are actually from Yellowknife. The rest are all from surrounding communities. And so this issue of uh, either people going to urban centers to access services or rural remote communities sending people to the urban center is something we need to be looking at, because if that's the case, if any where from you know 30 to 50 percent of all people in urban centers are actually from rural remote communities why are we not talking about that that's a significant issue and why funnel all of the federal dollars to urban centers if we could actually be treating that uh, in rural remote communities and we know feedback wise um Choices for Youth did a great project out in uh, St. John's Newfoundland again that showed that people you know don't want to move to urban centers. They they want to stay connected to their land, to their communities, to their families, to their natural sports that are in their uh, small communities. But they just don't. They can't. It's not feasible. They have to go to urban centers to access services. So and then half the time at this point, because we have such a crisis of homelessness in Canada, they can't access the services they need when they get to the urban center to begin with. So so it's definitely something we need to be talking about. Resources has been something we've had to fight for in Lanark County. We started with fundraising. We're now starting to get grants as we're starting to get results though we're always concerned that those grants won't be ongoing so now we're worried about sustainable funding so (laughs) so it's always a combination of issues but Again, we're very grateful for opportunities like this to be able to talk about it, to elevate the conversation. Uh, we're excited that we've got the National Alliance launched, and so we're hoping we'll start to see some uh, shift on a, on a national level to, to recognize the importance of looking at rural remote homelessness. So that's terrific that organizations are coming together now in the Alliance, and there'll be some more uh, sustained advocacy maybe uh, to make change happen. Is there also, uh, is part of this coming together also allowing organizations and individuals like yourself to share some promising practices and experiences to look at scaling? up opportunities or are we still at the very early stages of communities across Canada actually learning from each other learning from your experience and your successes and lessons learned along the way yeah I get called quite often actually from communities like I said I was invited to
invited to go to a workshop or a meeting a couple of weeks ago about a community looking at opening a shelter. But again, one of my concerns from that is we're two years into a 10-year strategy to end homelessness. We have the first federal strategy to end homelessness um, or to address housing and homelessness in Canada. And we just had Reaching Home was just launched, which is part of that strategy. But rural communities don't often access national or federal tools either because they're not relevant to rural remote communities. So the federal pit count that's done in designated communities across Canada, 61 communities, doesn't really work for rural remote communities. And so we have to use different models in Ontario. In Lanark County, we used the 20K homes and uh, we've used a by name list. And, and then we did a period prevalence count a couple of years ago. So there are tools that work for rural remote communities, but they're not necessarily endorsed by the federal government. And so if you want access to those sustainable funds, there needs to be a, a federal strategy around rural remote homelessness specifically. So we can look at things like training and, and tools and how to network to small rural communities. So lots of these communities who are doing, you know, organizations and small communities that are doing this work are doing it off the side of their desk. They're, they're not really a designated housing or homelessness agency, but they know they have clients who are, who are homeless. So they're doing what they can to support them. And so they don't have the resources within their agency to pay, you know, $2,000 to fly to, you know, across the country to go to a conference to attend. Uh, so it's been one of our concerns. We're really excited. It's one of the reasons why we advocated for, and, and this year we're going to be having for the first time ever, rural remote stream at the uh, National Alliance, the, so the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness has a national conference of about 1,200 or 1,300 people that attend every year. And so we're really excited that for the first year, there's going to be a rural remote specific stream that will offer workshops specific to rural remote communities. So so we're excited about that. And we think that's a step in the right direction. But we do know that you often in rural communities, as you would know as well, that a lot of news and, and training information travels by word of mouth. So you really have to be out there directly communicating with people. So I was invited just, I just got back late last night. I was telling you from uh, Thorndale, which is just outside of London, about six hours from here. And they invited me to go and speak about tiny homes and homelessness, and so I did. And I try to seize those opportunities as much as possible to go directly to people and talk because I know, again, I often even at that was approached and said, I'm sure we have homelessness here. We just don't really talk about it. And so, you know, part of that is is getting out there and making sure that small rural communities know that's an issue, know that there's tools and resources to help them and hopefully help them find the dollars to, to do some work around it. For sure. And, you know, when we see rural communities that maybe like the one you were just talking to, that might be at the early stages of recognizing the problem, grappling with the problem and looking at solutions. So based on your experience, what are some of the tips, the advice that you might have on getting it right at the early stages? Because that took a long time. The early stages took a long time for your organization and um, and maybe some pitfalls that folks should really try to avoid. But what would you have to say? So first, I would start by saying focus on prevention and housing first, as opposed to emergency models. So as much as I would say very loudly that we still need a, an adequate response to emergency housing in Leonard County, I know that by focusing on prevention and housing first, we've changed the nature of, of the nature of what we need now for emergency housing. Had we opened a shelter eight years ago, we would have invested all of our time, energy and resources and fundraising into maintaining that one shelter for six or eight beds in one town in Leonard County. By focusing on housing first prevention, what that looks like in terms of the need for emergency housing will be is much different now and so I would say to any rural community if you're starting focus on do some systems mapping find out what your assets are in your community who's doing what and why figure out what the gaps are start with prevention so try to get young people fast connect with schools that's the other thing I would say schools are one of the best resources in the the country as far as I'm concerned for for reaching out and identifying young people at risk of homelessness so we have our housing caseworkers in schools across the county like every day they're in a school somewhere so they're often the biggest source of resource of uh, referrals we get for young people so 
high five to teachers out there. And so we, I would say, focus yeah, on, on connecting with your, your supports in your, in your community and ask kids, go to kids and ask them, do a quick survey in one of your schools and ask kids, do you know anybody who's been homeless? And you'll probably be shocked by the results because often kids are the ones who know. Yeah, I know my buddies had to sleep outside or, you know, ask me for a place to stay. And so, yeah, consult kids and, and housing housing is the other piece I would say all across Canada we need housing so we need to mm-hmm. look at affordable housing models and uh, that goes back to the whole tiny home pitch it's not just about cute little tiny homes that you see in the front of a magazine for us it's really about finding practical solutions in small communities to allow people to build affordable housing so we should be able to buy a house for 100000 today not just two hundred dollars and $350,000 so, right. so we need to look at uh, those resources tools and options as well for people. So there's a lot of things that we have to do to to make (laughs) progress on this file. But if you were looking at the next few years, Charlie, what what would you prioritize in terms of what you would really like to see happen in Canada around rural youth homelessness? So youth is my passion for sure. So I always talk about youth and I do think it's a great prevention model for, for urban homelessness, for adult homelessness, for all of those things. So I think as we start to see a shift from a crisis responses to prevention and housing, I think we, we can't not talk about youth as well, which is good. But I think all across Canada right now, we have to build affordable housing. We have to look at affordable housing options. And so that's why tiny homes kind of became a bit of a passion for me because we're seeing communities where the, you know, the minimum price for a house is literally $250,000, $350,000. And that's a low end house considered low end. And so, you know, we have to, to start to look at models that are more affordable for people. Why can't people build a house for a hundred thousand? Why would municipal bylaws prevent that from happening? Why would banks refuse to give a mortgage on that? Why would CMHC refuse to ensure that we have to look at these structures we put in place to put people in precarious housing, to, to not allow people to own their own house in Canada. So, and so I think all across Canada, we're seeing that happen on various levels. We, we have a crisis of homelessness. We've got to get people off the streets and into housing. We know that, but I think housing in general, we need all options on the table. We need to look at all kinds of affordable options and, and, just build housing, get people into mm. housing. Yeah, that needs all to happen good things everywhere. will come. Other good things will come if we get yeah, housing rural, right. rural and remote. And as and as much as we are different, you know, I think there's a lot of similarities between mm-hmm. urban and rural homelessness. And so I think rural and remote just needs to be identified as critical as and as important as uh, urban homelessness as well. Well, thanks so much for sharing all these insights. It's been a great conversation and there's a lot more we can talk about. And we'd like to follow up on some of the things that you're doing, and especially after you get the the tiny homes model up and running and see some results from that. We want to reconnect and and see how that's going. You can do a podcast from the tiny home. That would be ideal. (laughs) We need to get our remote unit in in place. (laughs) Thanks very much, Terry. Yeah, well, thank you for doing this. Uh, Anybody who's elevating uh, rural communities has my love and respect. So (laughs) so thank you for inviting me. We appreciate it. Thanks. And thanks to all of you for joining us this week on Rural Spark. Our team includes content producer Catherine Murphy and technical producer Tara Seabarth. Music is by Jason Shaw. We wish you all the very best for the week ahead in your part of rural Canada.